We're getting out of the studio today and taking a field trip to Synergy Gardens out East End Road to hear from Lori Jenkins about growing asparagus on Ketchumac Bay. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. some vegetables that do well in cans. Canned tomatoes are awesome, and in Alaska are almost always the only tomatoes worth buying. Good quality canned peas can be surprisingly good, even if they aren't as good as fresh or frozen. Canned artichoke hearts are tasty. Collard greens out of a can aren't my first choice, but if you spruce them up with enough bacon and onions, and have some good cornbread around, they're pretty decent. Canned asparagus, however, is a very dismal thing. It's probably responsible for the vast majority of asparagus haters, and might even put someone off the idea of green vegetables entirely. There is a reason that asparagus season is a major yearly marker in asparagus-loving cultures. Asparagus is not merely best fresh, but it should only be eaten that way, although we can make a small exception for people who like it pickled. Even fresh in-season asparagus is not without its dangers. It's entirely possible for someone to suffer through sulfurous cans of asparagus and decide to give it one more shot, only to be confronted with fresh asparagus that has been boiled and boiled and boiled some more. Obviously, they conclude this is simply what asparagus is, and then they go back to their chicken tenders. The cooking advice for asparagus is very simple. Cook it fast or don't cook it at all. You can blanch it in boiling water, you can steam it, you can roast it at high heat, you can saute it, or you can grill it, but whatever you do to it, do it quickly. The longer it cooks, the more the fresh and floral aromatics that make it so delicious are driven off, and what remains is the heavy, sulfurous, and vegetal flavors that overwhelm everything, including the will to continue eating. Some nice roasted asparagus, a little brown and slightly crunchy on the outside, sweet and juicy on the end, tossed in a little oil or maybe drizzled with vinaigrette, can turn even an adamant hater of vegetables around. And then we can work on loving Brussels sprouts. Outside, but well, ideally, yeah, just because I don't have uh, super high tunnel capacity. But you might want to invent low tunnels. One, yeah, that that would be sort of what I would think of doing. And I would start installing them as soon as the ground is. You could install your hoops. This asparagus is going to grow this tall. Really? Yes. It gets that high? Um, eight, seven to eight feet. You no noticed way. in the tunnel we had that. Uh, T-post metal bars, and I had the white string uh -huh. because it flops over. Look at these things, Jeff. So oh, this wow. was five feet almost, and but in the tunnel, it grew this high and flopped over. It becomes a fern. You've seen asparagus fern in a hanging basket. Yeah, well, I, you know, because I'm growing the uh, I'm growing the the seeds out right now. My starts all have fern. They look kind of like dill, actually. Exactly. So. When, after you have a five to six week, six week harvest time when they're bearing and you want to get them like no bigger than that, you've seen that seed head, that's the delicious part. Right. Each one of those little ridges, triangles, ferns out. Okay. And they get taller and taller and then it blooms with the beautiful red berry. So with that, they get this tall. We're going to be staking these outside ones this season. Okay. And we're going to put 
uh, trellis wire like right there on the raspberries and keep them contained so that they don't flop over into my other garden space. Um, so your hoops um, would warm your soil or you don't have to do that but if you want your asparagus to bear maybe June July for you and into August um, if you have the hoops you could do some plastic and then you and then that also might be able to tie it up to keep all these these ferns right and then um, you know we laid the ferns over and then mulched it asparagus doesn't have to be that hard I'll um, I'll show you the information that I studied and um, to read to go by um, I use Rodale press and um, Johnny's catalog and then you just google everything right so you say it starts outside, this bed starts bearing, you said in June, May? This outside asparagus last year sent up edible, um, edible asparagus, it was late July. Late July. Yes, I was a little alarmed uh, because uh, the soils were still so cool. I kept my mulch on for weed deterrent and also keeping mulch is um, healthy and it's a great worm environment. I can see um, there's worms over there. And worms are basically nature's gardeners. You know, they do more work than I do. Um, and so I planted them. I got two rows in this 30-inch um, bed. And how heavy can you harvest them? Um, well, th this is the challenge. These were planted in 17. We did not harvest in 2018. This year, they say you have two to three weeks you can harvest, a little bit. But 2020, you can begin to harvest um, four to six weeks. And then, you know, they're going to come up. Th the thicker asparagus have um, more inside pulp and fiber. And I love the thicker ones better. The little skinny pencil ones are tougher, a little more woody. When they start coming up thin and pencil-y, um, thin like the size of a pencil, the nutrients in the roots themselves have played themselves out and your six weeks is about up and then you stop harvesting. And then, um, then you let them grow up to be their fronds. So really they say you have, um, once your roots are firmly established, the third year, six to eight weeks harvest. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have six to eight weeks of a harvest. And I, you can generally get two harvests a week, sometimes even three. Oh, wow. And do you, do you like harvest like half of all the ones that are up or can you harvest them all and they'll just keep going or? They keep going. Okay. You know, I, um, I showed you my asparagus in the tunnel. Right. They're all different sizes. Right. You and I ate the biggest, nicest ones. Right. Those would have been the dinner. Um, or my uh, so, brunch asparagus. So the, the, the skinny asparagus versus the fat asparagus, that's not actually like different varieties. That's not different beds. They all come up. Some of them are skinny. Some of them are big. That's correct. Because there's a huge, like, there's always an argument in the culinary world. Like some people are like, skinny asparagus, that's, a, that's the only good asparagus. And then other people are, no, 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 it has to be the fat asparagus. Exactly. But they're the same. That's correct. So you just sort them differently. You just eat what you got is gotcha. the way I look at it. <laughs> um, because at first, you're bigger, they may come up bigger early in the season. Okay. And I don't even think it has anything to do with how much you water them. It, it, it may have something to do with your nutrient levels. Like I, um, asparagus is what I consider a heavy feeder at first, and they like a nice balanced pH, which means a 7.0 pH, which they love lime. So they'll say when you plant your roots, you're going to lime your bed. Um, you should always have a soil test. And um, if you're not that person who does a soil test, you should just cover your butt in lime. And um, you sprinkle lime like you might uh, put real thick mozzarella cheese on a pizza. Because when I, was, when I was looking at my seed packets and when I was reading through the catalog, where did I get these from? I think I got these from uh, Baker Creek. Yes. And, uh, Great reading, seed company. And I was reading through their um, seed catalog, and they, their instructions say to put my starts this year into a nursery bed and then leave them in there for a year and then put them into a final bed. Is that something I should really worry about or is that just? Well, Jeff, because you started with seed mm -hmm. and the seed is going to make a very small little plant and a small root, you can protect your root that way and grow your root up. Okay. And see, 
what I did, because I'm Synergy Gardens and I wanted my asparagus soon, I didn't want to wait that extra two years that seed might, you need, you're going to wait a little longer for your seed to have the root mass, gotcha. the root energy. Um, I, I'm planting roots today in a, my new tunnel. I'm planting um, Millennium and Purple Passion, and I ordered roots, and I'm going to show you those roots are almost pencil thin themselves, and we're going to spread the roots out like, like my, if I put my palms together and my thumbs up, all my four fingers are like the root hairs, and you plant them out like this, and the asparagus is going to grow up like on every knuckle and on every fingernail. Okay. So your little baby root is going to be at first thin, like almost like beard hairs. And as the next year, they're going to get a little thicker, and your roots are going to hold that energy so that you're going to get um, really healthy asparagus. Okay. And then how thick does it, how thick is this going to eventually? I know I know this is this bed's still pretty young, but is it going to be like packed wall to wall with asparagus? Or? Well, I did plant two rows in my thirty um, my thirty inch wide bed, but my each planting was um, twelve inches apart, and you get eight inches of an eight inch circumference of roots that come up um, all at different times. They don't come up all at once. You're going to get Two to three shoots, you eat them. Two to three shoots, you eat them. Two to three shoots, you eat them. And then two more weeks later, you might get two to three more shoots. So I planted this bed happens to be 25 feet long. So there's 50 crowns. You call the roots crowns when you purchase them. Right. Your seeds are making, your, you've planted them and they're making crowns for you. I would be careful with your little root hairs and I would put them in a nursery. And then because we talked earlier when you first arrived, the soils in Homer specifically don't warm up as fast or even hardly at all. Our challenge is our cool soils in the summer, which is one of the reasons people here love high tunnels, because the high tunnels warm up your soil. Right. Your outside beds, the soil still say, stays cool, which is excellent for rutabagas and broccoli. But those other wonderful crops, um, really do favor a high tunnel for, uh, you know, consistent production. Right. Okay. And you also saw how wet this soil is. Um, and, you know, the mulch holds in the moisture, the hay mulch, and the mulch holds in the coolness. So uh, myself and my interns today, as a matter of fact, we're hopefully removing this hay so that my soils can start to dry off and warm up. And so my asparagus will start to... Um, realize it's spring. And what's your soil composition out here? Because I know like Homer, there's a lot of like, people have a lot of clay that really holds a lot of moisture and- Well, I also, mostly. I use raised beds. Right. So um, I rake up the topsoil from the edge. I amend with finished compost. Um, and our soils are good and rich, but they're not deep. There is that clay layer kind of, um, uh, to me, it's on the shallow side. So that's one of the reasons we use raised beds. It'll help dry things out. Asparagus doesn't like to have their feet wet. Um, they're not a marsh or a bog plant. So you want good topsoil and you want to enrich the top of your soil so that you can create drainage. Asparagus also likes a little sandy loam. Um, I have added sand when I first started this garden in five gallon buckets. Not. Um, and sand helps the perk. But once it hits that clay layer down low, that clay layer here in Homer is almost impervious. Uh -huh. You know, it's not my favorite, but. Yeah. So what's the optimal number of hours that a dog should sleep right next to the asparagus bed? As many as you can get that dog to be. <laughs> yeah. Lee Lou's my, our mascot. There are three classic emulsified sauces and all three of them are awesome with asparagus. So we're gonna start with mayonnaise. Uh, a classic mayonnaise would be egg yolk, lemon juice, mustard, and oil and salt. It's very delicious. It's wonderful on asparagus. Today we're just gonna be doing things a little bit different. And this is for a cold dish. You can use it for raw asparagus, or you could also use it for asparagus that you have either blanched or steamed and then you're serving it cold or room temperature because mayonnaise is a sauce that needs to be served at room temperature or below. 
And what we're going to be making today is a miso mayonnaise. And miso, as you may or may not be aware, is a Japanese uh, food. It is fermented paste that is usually made out of soybeans and other stuff. It can be made pretty much with any grain, and it's made by fermenting um, soybeans plus whatever else, whatever other grains they're using with uh, salt and koji. And koji is the particular mold that's used to make uh, sake. It's used to ferment the rice for sake. It's used to to make uh, for soy sauce. It's it's extremely useful mold. What I have today is shiro miso, which is otherwise known in English as white miso. It is soybeans and rice. So I'm not making a ton of mayonnaise here, so I don't need a ton of miso. I'm just going to use like a teaspoon of miso because this stuff is very intense. It's obviously it's very salty because it contains a lot of salt. And the other characteristic of his flavor is umami, which it's a Japanese word that translates basically into meatiness, savoriness is often the translation. You know, it's the same quality that mushrooms have, that meat has. A lot of fermented foods have it. Soy sauce has it. It's that sort of deep, rich flavor that almost coats the mouth. It sort of fills the mouth and makes the other flavors sort of come into focus a little bit. So I'm going to use a little bit of uh, miso here. If I decide at the end that a tablespoon's not enough, then it's real easy to add some more. I'm going to crack an egg. If you're really worried about salmonella, which really not a bad thing to be worried about, you know, it does exist in eggs. You can use pasteurized eggs. If you have a sous vide rig, you can pasteurize your own eggs, 135 degrees for 75 minutes. I am going to make this mayonnaise today in my mortar and pestle. I like making mayonnaise, particularly small quantities like this in a mortar and pestle. For some reason, I find it a little easier to get the emulsion going. And the hardest part with making any emulsified sauce is starting the emulsion because it, you gotta go real slow and you gotta do just a few dribble drops at a time of your oil. Once the emulsion gets rocking, you can move pretty quickly. But at the beginning, it needs to happen real slow. And I find, I don't know if it's the larger surface area of the mortar and pestle, that you're more efficiently mixing the beginning drops of oil into there and keeping them sort of apart. I find for small quantities, a mortar and pestle is the easiest way. So I mashed my egg yolk in with my miso and it is extremely rich smelling. I'm gonna splash a little bit of rice vinegar in. Not very much, maybe about the same amount uh, of rice vinegar as my egg yolk. I could add garlic, I could add ginger, I could add a lot of other things. For this, I want this to be a very simple mayonnaise. I don't want I don't want to throw a bunch of other stuff in there. There's one thing, particularly when you're sort of trying to cook outside of a tradition that you grew up in and really understand. A lot of times people, and I am certainly guilty of this, throw the kitchen sink at things. You know, it's like, oh, I've got some miso in here. Well, that's an Asian ingredient. So let me throw some ginger in there. Oh, now let me throw some five spice in there. Now let me go to, you know, Thailand and let's throw some coconut milk in there. And you sort of get this thing that by the time you've dumped the entire Asian aisle in here, you've just got this kind of not very tasty stuff. So I've got a little miso. I've got egg yolk and a little splash of rice vinegar. And now I'm going to start dripping in some, I'm going to start with canola oil. I have some sesame oil. But you don't want to use all sesame oil because that would be super, super intense. And one trick in not just mayonnaise, but in vinaigrettes as well, is if you have a really intense and also really expensive oil, like a walnut oil or a sesame oil or something like that, that is very intense and also costs a lot of money, it's frequently a better idea to bulk out some of the oil with a neutral flavored oil like a grapeseed or a safflower or in my case today, I'm using canola oil, which tends to be the oil that I keep on hand for stuff like this. So I'm gonna drip, 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 just a couple drops and stir it in my mortar and pestle. As I stir it, I can see, you know, when I first drop it in there, there are a few bigger drops of oil that sort of freak out and then they incorporate. And you can see the sauce will kind of tighten up just a little bit each time. Mayonnaise, the ratio is right about uh, three parts oil to one part egg yolk. 
So for one egg yolk, which is about 50 grams, it's gonna be about 150 grams of oil or roughly a half a cup. Take your time at the beginning. I'm just giving a quick little squirt each time. But it's definitely every time these the new oil gets incorporated a little bit easier. And now I can start a drip, drip, drip a little faster. You can make mayonnaise in the blender or in the food processor, and it's good. It's it's perfectly good quality. A big reason I don't do it necessarily that much at home is that you kind of have to make a lot of it that way, and mayonnaise goes a long way. You know, if I make a two egg mayonnaise at my house, it, that's a lot. And fresh mayonnaise like this, you really don't want to keep it in the fridge for much more than a week. The big difference between uh, house-made mayonnaise versus commercial stuff is that commercial stuff, A, typically uses whole eggs, and it, B, it almost always uses a huge amount of oil. You can actually, emul one egg yolk will emulsify an enormous amount of oil. Um, it's just that it tastes kind of bland. So your house-made mayonnaise is gonna be considerably eggier, which is where a lot of the flavor comes from. All right, now I'm just squirting it in in a nice stream here. It is sucking right into the mayonnaise. Now let's say, hypothetically, that I break this, which it's always a risk. If you break it, crack another egg yolk out and start again with your broken mayonnaise. Beat it very slowly into your egg yolk. And it will come back together and you just carry on. You might have to make a little bit more. Uh, you might have to add more oil and make a slightly larger batch. You, you don't even have to use a whole egg yolk. You can just use a little part of it, you know. You can spread it on on a sandwich for sure, and it's very delicious, but don't expect it to be the sort of like, almost like whipped cream texture of a commercial mayonnaise. It's always gonna be a little thinner, more like, like a reduced cream, kind of. And now I'm gonna switch to uh, about a quarter of my oil total is gonna be sesame oil. It's a little more than a tablespoon and it's very intense smelling right now. It's, this is a very, it almost looks like mustard. It's very intense, it's very yellow because there's so much egg yolk in it. Oh man, whoo, that's good. Because it's the shiro miso, it has, it's a little, it's got a little sweet edge to it from the rice. And then there's this like intense sort of salty savoriness from the from the bulk of the miso, the fermented part of the miso itself. And then there's like this nutty finish from the sesame oil. And basically I could sit here and eat this with a spoon. That's gonna be really good on asparagus. So this is our outside. Uh -huh. I'll show you what we're planting. Okay. And I would, um, you know, a lot of people in Homer are using raised wooden side beds or their beds could even be that high. Right. That would be freaking awesome for asparagus. Oh, yeah. You know? Maybe and I'll show you, we're doing that. that down there. Yeah, yeah this is this is my, nec my next uh, big decision is where exactly I'm gonna put my asparagus beds, mm -hmm. so. So I'll take you down here to what Ryan and Obadiah are planting. So, this is what we're doing. Okay, so these are the asparagus beds. Yes, sir. Are you are the uh, the wood you got what like two by eights or something? Are those mm -hmm. permanent? Yes, they're going to be permanent. Okay. We're driving these oh, two yep. feet in the ground, and these are sideboards, so they're rough cut, and the rebar is going to hold it. We raked up the topsoil. We amended with horse manure, aged for two years. Okay. Uh, that we had piled up. And then what's that sprinkled on the top? Is that wood ash or? That's your lime. Oh, that's lime, okay. I don't know, is that your mozzarella layer or Parmesan <laughs> layer? That's an amendment mix, mostly lime, though I did add a little um, uh, fish meal from Kodiak, green sand. What is green sand? I've heard of it, but I don't actually know what it is. I think it's a high potassium uh, supplement. Oh, okay. And if it's difficult to find, Langbanite works. Our soils are uh, need extra boron and potassium. Uh -huh. Your NPK. Yep. Um, nitrogen is a little bit from blood meal, finished compost, um, and legumes. So these are the roots I purchased. And I okay. kept them moist. These are all the millenniums. And you see, 
your seed ha should make a root if you're lucky like that big. Yep. And you're going to plant, you're going to spread these roots out. Okay. Like so it kind of look they kind of look like the hand like mop mop heads basically. Well, when they come, yes. Yeah. And, and so you spread all the you spread the roots out and mm -hmm. Do you, are, how deep do you plant them? Depends on the the topsoil layer. The instructions say anywhere from 6 to 12 inches. Okay. Um, you know, with that clay layer we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. you actually want to be above that. You don't want to dig your trench down into that clay layer. Okay. So um, these are really beautiful, healthy roots. Um, I'm going to take this root that's attached. We're going to plant it like this. We're going to spread each root out. Beautiful. Look how long. So if I do 10 inches, these roots are going to overlap. The energy is right in here. Uh -huh. um, and then through the years, this will act like your knuckle. And these send up shoots. This crown just grows and grows. So will so the will you plant it out like that? Will the roots themselves uh, will more crowns develop at the end of the roots, or is it one crown, and that's what you're going to get? One crown is what you get. Okay. The crown gets bigger and bigger, and like I said, these knuckles okay. will send up an asparagus I in gotcha. time. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So and it, and is it like is it like a rhubarb where in ten years if you divide the crown can you replant that or does that destroy it? Um, or do you know? You can move your asparagus. Um, I've had to do that once when I moved from one house to another years ago and I don't recommend it. It's not, no, you do not divide it. You move the whole root ball. I gotcha. Aspar rhubarb, completely different plant. Right. You can slice it um, and divide it and make more rhubarbs. Okay. With the asparagus, you would just move the whole crown. I gotcha. From one spot to another. So it's, it's more like a tree than a rhubarb. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so I have a box of the purple passion and another, um, I think I would order 100 roots of each. And like I said, my aim would be to um, collect some seed and have seed for people. Um, and I would like to expand ourselves, but we're starting out with these, these roots and I'm keeping them moist until the bed is ready to receive them. Is the, uh, is the three years between uh, planting and eating, is that also uh, the same amount of time before you can harvest seeds as well? Or do you have to wait even longer for that? No, you don't. Last year in 2018, um, our fronds did make some seed. So I don't think you do have to wait. Okay. And there are some varieties that say they're only males or only females. And if you purchase roots that say that, you might not get seed. Um, so you just have to be mindful. Okay, so there are male, there are male plants and female plants. Is there any way yes. to, how do you, how do you tell when they're growing? Um, you just have to observe, collect the seed, look at it. Um, stratify them and uh, germinate them inside and see if they're um, if they've been fertile or not is there a trick to germination because I mine I, I, I just planted mine and they're coming up so are, do they need to be like because I also have some uh, are you familiar with oyster leaf on the beach uh, well I don't know if they I don't know if they grow if it grows here or not but it's a it, it's a little plant that's uh, it tastes like an oyster huh. um, I think it's originally from Scotland but I, I ordered some from one of the seed companies, I can't remember which one, and they said what you're supposed to do with it is uh, put it in the refrigerator for several weeks. And actually I got some other information that said put it actually on a moist paper towel inside a container in the refrigerator for oh. several weeks. And then you take it out and uh, that in some way spurs the seed to begin growing and then you put it into warm soil, warm moist soil, and then in theory you get this plant. So I don't know, we'll see. Uh-huh. But so this, you can just plant asparagus seed, right? Yes. Okay. You don't have to do anything complicated to it. Always Google that YouTube and see what they, someone else does right. too. You know, because if you're going through that much trouble and you're actually going to stay on it and not let it dry out on that paper towel, yeah, yeah. you know, it's going to be a little bit of your time. All of that nurturing is such fun energy and you want success. So, you know, the more little home research you do yeah. when you try these experimental things, you're going to get better success if you really, you know, if you do your own research, too. Right. So what kind of yield can you expect out of, because this is, what do you say these are? Are these? Uh, these are high yielding varieties that okay. we ordered specifically. Okay. Uh, we researched, you know, um, high yielding commercial varieties, though we're very organic. 
And I, so when I say a commercial variety, that's for production. Is and there is there one asparagus that's like in the supermarket? Is that pretty much all the same uh, breed? You know, they don't tell you. It's oh. not like the Brayburn apple versus the Gala apple. Right. Asparagus is asparagus in a grocery store. And I don't know what variety it is. Um, and it, I think it, it's going to depend on whether it was raised in South California, Central California, or Mexico, or Canada. Um, what varieties? We keyed out Millennium and Purple Passion as high variety, but the old-timer varieties are Martha Washington or Washington. Uh -huh. And so what's in a grocery store could be those. Mary Washington. There's Martha and Mary uh, Washington varieties. Some uh, vegetables they'll have like, you know, like, or fruits too, like the bananas, like all the bananas are cabin dishes, you know, or, yeah. you know, so, but asparagus isn't like that. It could be different. I think it could because they're going to pick things disease resistant to their climate. They're going to pick things that produce in their climate, whether it's Southern or Northern. Right. I picked Northern, um, I picked Canadian and um, Fairbanks varieties that have performed well for uh, the University of Saskatchewan and for the uh, University of Alaska. Right. And in my other trial, I had three varieties I trialed. And this planting, we went with Millennium and Purple Passion. Okay. And were, what were the ones that you had up in the outdoor one? We trialed all three okay. to see which are going to perform outdoors as opposed to um, inside the tunnel. Okay. And I wanted to see if uh, my outside varieties are going to be productive. And if they're going to yield heavy, I want a heavy yielding asparagus. If I'm going to go through all this trouble, I don't want two to three spears every two weeks. I want, you know, a handful. I want to have a dinner. I want to have people over and we want to have a lot of asparagus. I want asparagus in my eggs for breakfast and I want, you know, asparagus in the evening. So I want high yielding asparagus. All right. Our second emulsified sauce for asparagus that we're going to be making today is a vinaigrette. Vinaigrettes are, of course, most famous as salad dressings, but to me personally, I think they are one of the most underrated sauces for uh, just about anything, in part because they're easy, they're fast, it takes no trouble at all, you're not dealing with egg yolks and raw eggs, you don't have to heat anything, basically it's not quite dump everything into a, into a bowl and beat it up, but it's pretty close to that. The other thing that I like about them is that they do contain a lot of vinegar, so they're very acidic, which helps a lot with a lot of different kinds of food, especially like fish cakes, things like that. I love vinaigrettes on those, and really any kind of fish. Fish and vinaigrettes are like a match made in heaven. They're beautiful together. Funnily enough, the one place I really don't use them that often anymore is making salads. I use oil and vinegar, but I don't really make a proper vinaigrette with it. What I almost always do when I make a, like a leafy salad is I put some oil on just enough to sort of coat the leaves, toss that the leaves in the oil just to make sure that they're all coated, and then I'll sprinkle some vinegar on and whatever else I'm having in the salad, and that's pretty much it. You can use any kind of vinegar, you can use any kind of oil, you can use, is there an oily component and an acid component? Bang, you have a vinaigrette. Now add whatever else goes into it that you want. Today, I'm going to be making a maple syrup vinaigrette because I have some maple syrup. Quebec number one, Francais, dark. It's great, this, is, this would be grade B in like Vermont. In Quebec, it's number one because they know it's better than. The difference is that, that B is darker and more, it's much more intense of a maple flavor, whereas the A stuff is lighter. So I have a bowl with one quarter cup of my red wine vinegar and three garlic cloves, because I'm gonna put garlic in this because I like garlic. And one little trick that I have mentioned before on the show, but I'm gonna mention it again because it's a good one, is anytime you're making any kind of a raw preparation that involves garlic, particularly if you're using like supermarket garlic that's almost always kind of old, it's, all, it's a little pungent, there's like kind of some bitter components, it's a little too hot. You don't have to do this so much if you're using really high quality like fresh garlic that you can get locally sometimes because that is much milder and much sort of more floral and aromatic on its own. But with older supermarket garlic, I pretty much always do this. Let it sit in an acid, lemon juice, vinegar, whatever, for 
five to 10 minutes. And what that does is it softens the edges of that sort of pungent garlic heat and it keeps the sauce from being too bitter at the end. Yeah, so I've got my garlic in there. I'm sprinkling a little salt in. I have just opened my can of Quebec number one. <laughs> you know, you can pretty much fly down to Quebec and buy a bunch of maple syrup and fly it back to Alaska. Just about cheaper than trying to buy maple syrup in the stores here. So <laughs> that's the only reason I have this much. So maybe a tablespoon of maple syrup. And I'm smelling it and I think it could use just a pinch more maple syrup because I like maple syrup. Maybe another half a tablespoon. I'm just gonna go with garlic, salt, black pepper. You know what? I'm not. I'm gonna add one more thing. I'm gonna add a little dollop of Dijon mustard. And much like with the miso earlier that we were talking about, mustard is a very good emulsifier. And in fact, mustard gets a real workout in a lot of emulsified sauces as the principal emulsifier. So I'm gonna do a similar thing to what I did with the mayonnaise, which is I'm going to use the bulk of my oil is going to be canola oil. And then at the end, about a quarter of the oil is gonna be walnut oil. Always remember if you buy walnut oil at the grocery store, especially up here, I like to store it in the fridge it goes rancid fairly quickly. That slows down considerably if you keep it in the fridge. Now the same sort of principle goes with vinaigrettes as uh, with mayonnaise where you wanna start just by dripping it in there. Here's the thing about vinaigrettes though, is that particularly if you're gonna store it for any length of time, they're almost always gonna break again. Um, if you use a lot of mustard, sometimes they won't. Garlic is also a good emulsifier. I have a lot of garlic in here. Sometimes a, a, a huge amount of garlic and a huge amount of mustard is enough to keep a sauce together. Most of the time, they break. So put them in a container that you can shake because usually the other advantage of vinaigrettes is that they usually come back together fairly quickly. But a few little drips of oil. And you can see, you know, it goes from being just watery to it just starts to tighten up a little bit. Keep beating fairly vigorously. Now this I'm making in a bowl with a whisk. Um, I find that it's generally a little easier to make a vinaigrette this way. Although I have made vinaigrettes in with a mortar and pestle as well. And it works all right too. So with the maple syrup in here, the sauce is kind of the color of a very light maple, almost like a light peanut butter. The classic ratio of a vinaigrette is three to one. If you want it to be a little more vinegary, Two to one is fine. All right, so that is right about a half cup of canola oil. So now I'm gonna get my walnut oil out. Give it a smell, make sure it's still good, which it is. And drizzle, drizzle, drizzle. A vinaigrette is never gonna be as thick as a mayonnaise. Now one trick you can use, if you are scientifically inclined and have access to it, is, uh, and it's fairly common, it, it's really common in commercial salad dressing. It's pretty common in a lot of commercial kitchens, um, especially on the higher end, is a very small percent of uh, xanthan gum, which is a hydrocolloid, much like a starch is also a hydrocolloid, which is this something that thickens uh, a liquid, basically. And xanthan gum is, uh, it's actually derived from a specific species of bacteria that, attractively enough, responsible for the slimy uh, texture of decomposing food. But it turns out that if you isolate this particular bacteria and you, you take this secretion from it, it does a really good job of thickening foods as well. So they're not actually like, they're not like, you know, digging around in the bottom of the trash to get the stuff. It does a very good job of both thickening something like a vinaigrette, a salad dressing, and also keeping it that way so it's not gonna necessarily break in the fridge, which obviously is very handy if you are in a commercial situation. So it's not, oh man, oh garlic. Yeah, that's all right. I wanna go run out and grab some asparagus right now and just dip it in this. So as far of, of all the asparagus farmers in, that you know of in Alaska in general and in the Homer area, who's getting the earliest consistent yields? Colleen's husband. 
She's a pe- she was a peony grower when I met her when I first moved here. And I don't know her husband's name. They have two tunnels, and he started asparagus early. And I also recommend building low tunnels to heat up your soils in May and June so that you'll get good outside asparagus. I think you can you outside without a high tunnel, but yeah. you might need to push it a bit with what I call caterpillar, or I used to call them cloches, which is the French word, but... Uh, a caterpillar tunnel was um, what they're using here in America to right. call, which is a little more protection, a caterpillar tunnel in plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, I, like I said, after your harvest window is up, the asparagus is going to grow five to nine feet. It's going to outgrow its, so you, its caterpillar tunnel. So you basically just leave that on for the first part of the season, and then yeah. once it starts to get big and mm-hmm. you quit harvesting, you take it off. Yeah. Yeah, you could just put it on the edge, roll it up, you know, store it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the plants do well outside, but as far as getting harvest, harvestable quantities of asparagus, you need to take the extra care, is what yes, you're saying. Yes, I would. All right. You know, and it's worth it. I mean, it's totally worth it. Well, yeah, because asparagus, I mean, I had, I had some of that from, from inside your other greenhouse, and it was amazing. So what's your favorite? What do you like to do with your asparagus when you harvest it? Well, you and I ate it raw right out of the garden, and you can't beat that. It's pretty amazing. You know, it grows great with garlic, olive oil. It's like perfect. You know, um, you can steam it. I've pickled it. I really just love it. Um, a flash saute with garlic, le- olive oil, and, you know, a tiny squeeze of lemon. You know, you really want to pop it with some Parmesan. That puts it over the top. I love <laughs> it served um, with some, you know, good kilcher beef is excellent. You know, that's one of my favorite meals, a Caesar salad, asparagus, and a little grilled steak, and, you know, two sisters' baguettes would be like, that's one of the bomb meals. But um, I like asparagus omelets. Oh, yeah. Asparagus and eggs are classic. Yes. And I like a poached egg if I feel like taking the time and um, having that kind of breakfast with asparagus and if, um, you know, a little hollandaise. Well, yeah, that's what I'm actually, one of my recipe segments in this one is going to be making hollandaise nice to go with asparagus yeah that's perfect for our final trick today we're going to be making a sauce maltese this is uh basically a hollandaise it is of the hollandaise family the hollandaise bernays family some people name all the sauces after bernays some name them after hollandaise bernays of course is made with reduced vinegar infused with tarragon and shallots and hollandaise is made with lemon juice and both of those go into an emulsified butter and egg yolk base and this sauce maltese is a classic french sauce that goes with asparagus and it is made with oranges specifically if you can get them blood oranges and i was able to find a blood orange today which doesn't happen all the time. Probably going to be fairly mediocre because we live in Alaska, but hey. So all the techniques that I'm going to be using will be involved in making hollandaise as well. Except that it uses blood orange juice. Specifically, it uses an infusion of blood orange juice with the zest. So I've got my little saucepan and I am well squeezing and straining my blood orange. Yeah, these blood orange, they smell, <laughs> they're a lot better smelling and, and a lot more intensely flavored and a lot more intensely colored than the regular oranges that we get at this store, especially. They're just, they don't taste like anything. It's not even worth, it's not even worth trying if, if you can't, if you can't find a blood orange, just make a regular hollandaise. Because regular hollandaise is also classic with asparagus. So I've got the zest and I'm julianning it. This will get strained out at the end, and I'm going to infuse and reduce this sauce just a hair, not a lot, just a little bit. You can make uh, hollandaise type sauces with pretty much anything. I've made them with grapefruit before. That goes really well with salmon. So I'm going to put that on the back burner, and I'm going to get a second pan. And I'm going to separate my egg and drop the yolk into a pot. Now, the safest way of doing this is in a double boiler. This is true. It also takes a lot longer to do it in a double boiler. So the only real danger with hollandaise is curdling the egg. And the way that you curdle your egg 
is if it gets too hot. Basically about a little over 150 degrees, egg yolk begins to curdle. And once it curdles, there's no uncurdling it. You're done. In a double boiler with a bowl sitting over a pot of simmering water, there's a lot less risk that you will in fact curdle your egg. If you're doing it straight on the heat, the risk is considerably higher, but I like to live on the edge. The way that you begin making a hollandaise or a béarnaise or anything in this family, in our case again, a maltese, is you start by making a sabayon. And a sabayon is a mixture of egg yolk and liquid. In desserts, you almost always make it with egg yolk and wine. But for our purposes, for making a hollandaise today, we're going to use a little vinegar and I'm, you can also use uh, lemon juice if you've got it and there is nothing wrong with that. So I'm adding a little salt, a little vinegar to my yolk and a sabayon is just egg yolk heated with a liquid and beaten to incorporate air. I'm using one yolk and the basic official sort of recipe ratio is uh, six yolks to a pound of butter which breaks down to 75 grams of butter to one yolk. So I have one yolk beaten well with a little dash of vinegar and the acidity in the vinegar, if you let it sit for too long, it will begin to curdle the proteins, but it actually allows the, the egg yolks to be heated a little beyond where they could ordinarily go without curdling. So don't let them sit around too long once you had your vinegar or your lemon juice or whatever, whatever it is that you're using. Uh, don't let them sit around for a long time. Get fairly on it. And I've also added just a dash of water. And now I'm going to turn. I've got a heavy bottom pan, but it's a stainless pan with an aluminum core in the bottom. So it's it, it will react fairly quickly to heat. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to constantly be moving on and off the heat to try to keep uh, to try to keep the heat regulated. What I don't want to do is let it get too hot. What's essentially going to happen is egg yolks are very similar to egg whites. They will, as you beat them, incorporate air. But what you need to do is heat them so that the proteins just begin to sort of solidify and thicken and entrap the air within a just barely thickened protein matrix. They don't hold as well as, uh, as an egg white meringue will. But again, too much heat and then the proteins actually coagulate. I also, I also have 75 grams of butter. Cold butter, so there we go, we're on. And the thing that you're looking for is for your egg yolks to get a little frothy and they'll start to become a little pale and they'll start to get a distinct sort of uh, body to them. And I just have them in the corner of my pot and I'm holding my pot almost on its side because I don't want to spread this out, you know, because then if I spread it out too much, then the little, the, the spread out chunks can easily coagulate. But it's already, I'm already looking at now it's much paler. It's about twice the size in volume as it was before. And it's beginning to get a real thick, almost like it's about the same consistency as the mayonnaise that I made uh, earlier now. So once it starts to get to about this heavy cream consistency, I can start to add my butter a couple chunks at a time because this is, we're making an emulsified sauce and you can't add everything all at once or else the sauce is likely to break. So I just add a little bit, a little chunk, a little knob of butter. 75 grams of butter for one yolk. And it is currently very thick. Now it's like commercial mayonnaise. It'll be, this, this sauce will be very thick at the end. It's starting to get a little cold. You can tell because it starts to get a little too thick. 
seize up just a little too much. So when it does that, you just drop it back on the heat for just five, 10 seconds. And that loosens everything back up. And just remember if you have to stop for anything, so if you gotta grab a chunk of butter or whatever, take it off the heat real quick. It'll heat right back up. And remember too, I'm making this and I'm like, man, this is super, super thick. And it will be super, super thick because I haven't added, I still have some liquid to add, which is the reduction of my blood oranges. Okay, this is the last of my butter. So now I have a very bright yellow sauce. And I'm gonna give it just a pinch of Tabasco because just cranks the dial just a little bit and makes things lovely. And now I'm going to add my blood orange. This is the juice of one of them. And that is a perfect consistency. Oh. Mmm. And now we will taste it for seasoning. Oh, it's beautifully thick. Perfectly coats the spoon. Oh yeah, it's super bright. Oh, so bright. Oh, that'd be so good on asparagus. Okay, so I called you in here today for a very difficult topic. This is Patrick Driscoll from The Grog Shop. This week we're talking about asparagus. And asparagus is like so notorious for being difficult to pair with wine. No, it really is. And it, I will say it is one of my favorite foods. So this is... Something I've had to tackle a bunch. <laughs> um, I will say, I think Brussels sprouts, tiny bit harder. Oh, really? Though they fall in the same yeah. kind of category because they both have those organosulfite acids that are, they tend to t make wine taste either metallic or if you go the sweet route, they just accentuate sugars. Right. And you lose all the fruit from the wine and you just get Kool-Aid. <laughs> so are you looking more at like, what sauce it's going with or what it's accompanying is that kind of the tack you wind up having to take that makes a really big difference although i actually really think just like with so many things with wine i like to look at where the food comes from and then you look at what they drink there and you actually get really good pairings probably asparagus in the world is most popular in germany austria and northern italy the wines from there actually work really, really well. Huh. Maybe not what we imagine coming from there, but what they actually drink locally. Um, those work great. So like, uh, what, so like Gruner? I mean, Gruner is your absolute number one go-to for asparagus. Really? If, if you're leaving it alone, uh, Gruner Veltliner pairs actually brilliantly. It, 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 it's not, it, it, certainly it's not sweet. It has, but it has plenty of weight. Mm. And and you need that depth of flavor to match with something that is as intense in flavor as asparagus right. is when it's done right. But there's something about the vegetal character that's different from something like Sauvignon Blanc, because Sauvignon Blanc can get very asparagus-y on its own. Right. And I think when you do that pairing, you just, you overload it. Right. <laughs> and it, it, it's, you know, there's something about that diatolic character in Grunner that it, it really works with asparagus. It actually also works with Brussels sprouts. <laughs> but bone dry Rieslings, especially those that you find from Austria or from the Pfalz in Germany, uh, work really well. The varietals of Northern Italy, I mean, Silvaner or Muscat, uh, done in their dry but rich kind of formats work really well also. Any residual sugar in the wine tends to just get really accentuated with anything with those sulfide characteristics. So putting sweet with like broccoli also doesn't work particularly well as a general rule. Right. Okay, so then when I also, when I, when I hear, you know, dry, but maybe a little weighty, what about, and you can say <laughs> no, what about rosé? I, I think rosé works, um, but you have to be really careful. Dry, mineralic for or mineral forward rosé can work really well the fruit driven rosés don't so much probably like somewhere like minervois or provence domestic rosés spanish rosés that tend to be the weightier and uh, 
funny because here I'm talking about weight again, but um, they tend to be very fruit driven. They get lost, and I'm I. It's kind of odd, and I'm not, I'm want, not exactly sure why. You don't, want, they you do. don't want the fruit and vegetables in the same course. You really kind of don't. Because <laughs> you were saying, uh, you know, asparagus tending to be popular in Central Europe, which is also famous for its lagers. Yeah. Like, it, that seems to me like, and and those are a lot easier to get in certain cases here than... They, they certainly are. So do you have, what What about if we're if we're thinking beer for our asparagus? What, what direction should we look in? Uh, I think you want to go pale but not hoppy. Um, asparagus and hops kind of have the same interaction as asparagus and tannin or asparagus and oak. Um, so, you know, those really nice European lagers, uh, if you're going domestically, something like a blonde, sours work oh. surprisingly well. Oh. But again, it depends on what you're pairing it with. You know, I mean, we're getting into salmon season and... If I had a really nice piece of king salmon and I was putting some asparagus with it, you could still go red wine if you wanted to. Oh. Actually, even earth-driven Pinot Noirs. Okay, so Oregon or California if, if, oh, you, were, Oregon. if you were going Pinot. If I was going domestic Pinot, I'd go Oregon, not California, for, for asparagus. Right, right, right. This I've, I've run into a million times when trying to put together tasting menus. You know, if you want to put asparagus with a steak and you still want a big red wine... Just cover it in cheese or hollandaise, <laughs> and you're fine. <laughs> Asparagus is the best. I mean, it really is. It's it's just awesome. You know, I really, I'm, I'm really hoping my bed takes. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous about it, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, don't be. It just you, you. Sounds like you're gonna give it all the love and care it wants. I'm gonna give it a shot. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Lori Jenkins was recorded at Synergy Gardens. Patrick Driscoll was recorded at the KBBI studios. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2, by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Ebene. This is the second episode of the spring 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Thank you.